Well, we're in the middle of a series called Resilient Faith, looking at stories of people in the Old Testament before Jesus who lived faithfully uh, to God through difficult conditions. And, you know, during a time for us now as Portlanders in a city and nation that's sort of crawling back from the pandemic and coming out of this time of crazy political division in our country, Jose and the leaders of this church have sensed uh, an urgency for a fresh word, calling the church not only to a vibrant faith, but endurance in our faith and witness during this critical time in history. Uh, So we've been looking at people like Noah, Moses, Joseph. Last week we looked at Ruth. These men women who are incredible examples of godliness and a resilient faith through difficult times, people whose example we can imitate. Today, I got Jose's permission to sort of buck the trend. We've been studying people who are, you know, a positive example to look at of a resilient faith. I want to look uh, today instead at a negative example of an important character in Israel's history who does not have a resilient faith, ends up stumbling in his faith, I want to look at the life of King Saul. And you know, for some reason, there's a lot of interest these days anyway in our culture in villains. I mean, just look at the shows and movies coming out, whether it's uh, Disney's new show, Loki, or the the movie Cruella that just came out. I mean, I could think of all these television shows, uh, The Good Girls, and all these television shows that that follow these sort of seedy characters who descend more and more into criminal activity. What is our fascination with that, by the way, culturally? Are we just like dying of curiosity? What makes criminal people do criminal things? Does it somehow make us feel better about ourselves? Like, I know I've made mistakes, but at least I'm not as evil as that guy. Perhaps it is simply a case study of the moral descent of Western modern civilization further and further into what the Bible calls in the last days, men will glorify and call what is evil good and what is good evil, but alas, I am no cultural anthropologist. I am but a simpleton working for a nonprofit and I drive a Kia. So we'll let other great minds debate all of that. However, theologically, I do believe that God compelled the authors of Scripture to include some of the uglier accounts of people who actually stumbled and forsook their faith as important warnings for us. Uh, Some of you know that Saul is a very important character in the life of King David, his successor, who is a great godly King David, and Saul serves as sort of the villain in David's life. He's sort of the yin to David's yang, and Saul's story is quite devastating because he actually starts out really well, but then sort of slips more and more into evil and ends up fighting against David and ultimately against God. He's a dark character. So for today's today's message, we're going to study the quasi-sinister life of King Saul, and I get it. I know that's an odd sermon topic. You come to church expecting an uplifting word, and the guy up front's like, today, we're going to do a character study of Satan. (laughs) Point of the sermon, do not be like him. Band, you can come up, let's pray. But bear with me, because have you ever heard that saying, experience is the best teacher? Never heard that? Wisdom is learning from other people's experience. And if it's a bad experience, you can learn from that too. We can learn a lot from our own mistakes in life, but if you want to save yourself a lot of pain, take some time to watch and evaluate and learn from the mistakes of others so that you don't make the same mistakes. So today, for those of you planners out there in the crowd, I'm going to tell you exactly what's about to happen to you. 
We're going to spend the next seven minutes doing like some background surveying the uh, life of King Saul in the scriptures. I promise to try to make it at least half interesting. And then we're going to talk about three lessons that you and I can learn uh, to avoid Saul's pitfalls and instead live a resilient faith in our own lives. So take a little sip of your drink, adjust your collar, relax. If you're joining with us online at home, you can position a little pillow behind your back, like just like that. And here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we begin. We pick up with the prophet Samuel. Samuel was an important leader in the nation of Israel at the time, offering them spiritual guidance as a prophet. And we pick up in chapter 8, verse 4. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. Excuse me. I picture the prophet Samuel, by the way, at this point in his life, being like a bearded Gandalf or Albus Dumbledore, perhaps. And, you know, when they say this, you're getting old, I imagine him being like, hey, you better watch it, you youths, before I prophesy an early ending to your young lives. Expelliarmus, or, you know, whatever. But that's just my morbid imagination. In reality, he's much godlier. Though the insults continue. Look at verse four, they say, or five, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. What a statement. Now here's some context you have to understand leading up to King Saul. Until this point in time, the nation of Israel was actually a theocracy. Meaning, God was the nation's leader, represented by prophets, but they weren't satisfied with that. And Israel was being tempted to become more and more like these other pagan nations around them who had these big, powerful warrior human kings. They said, we want to be look, looking like that. So they're enticed and compromised to be like the other nations, and the elders of Israel take matters into their own hand, and they demand a king, which is an affront to God. They're like... Yeah, you've been great in all, God, but we want a human king. Samuel, the prophet of God, is disappointed, and God says to him, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting your leadership, they're rejecting me as king. And God reaches a point with Israel where he essentially says, listen, you guys want a king? Okay, I'll give you what you're asking for. And you then get Saul, which in the end becomes a huge burden and curse to the nation of Israel. And there's a huge lesson in there, by the way, Rather than trusting God and being satisfied in him and waiting on him, uh, Israel forces the issue and demands a king. And if you haven't learned yet in your life, in my life, we can get in a bunch of trouble when we force the issue instead of waiting on God and being patient and seeking him with our family decisions, career decisions, financial decisions. When we take matters in our own hands and sort of force the issue, it can cause a lot of harm. Uh, there's so much trouble in life that can be avoided simply by being patient as God's people, right? But that's a whole other sermon. Israel demands a king. God finally says, okay, so if you're Israel and you want a king, what do you do? Better call Saul. Chapter 9, verse 1, says this, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin, Kish had a son named Saul. And if you're sitting there thinking, gosh, there's some long lists of strange names in the Bible, you are correct. 
That happens often. But it's important because one of the things that demonstrates the validity of Scripture is keeping these very real accounts that these are real human beings who really did this stuff, okay? The point is, Saul is the son of this wealthy Benjamite man named Kish. Look down at the notes on him in verse 2. He had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So externally, Saul seemed like an impressive individual. Saul is good-looking, he's very tall, uh, which they thought would be a good benefit in a king since their primary enemy at the time was the Philistines, who were known to have a few literal giants on their goon squad at the time. So if you're Israel, who do you want? We want the tall guy for our warrior king. And so they come to Saul. And then in verse 3, you get what is a long story we'll skip over, but uh, Saul is sent by his father to tend to some donkeys. And so it's sort of this odd scene where uh, when Samuel comes to anoint Saul as king, he's like amidst and hanging out in this field of donkeys. And we'll skip down to verse 16. God instructs Samuel, he says, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So, Much to uh, Saul's surprise and shock, Samuel shows up and says, God is appointing you to be uh, the first king of Israel. And things actually start out great. In the next uh, few chapters, Saul is used by God in battle to help Israel get a key victory at a region called Jabesh against the Ammonites. Saul launches off to a strong start. He's leading leading the people to victories. God's getting the glory. Israel uh, people are happy and all seems to be well. But then, then some challenges arise and the resiliency of Saul's faith is tested and we begin to see some cracks in Saul's character. Chapter 13 is where things start to unravel. Saul and Israel are going to the next battle, this time against the Philistines, where God tells Saul in advance, he promises Saul, God says, I'm going to give you the victory against the Philistines. So understand, anointing has been given to Saul by God, victory has been given, grace has been poured out, but Saul flounders. Because prior to this battle, God had given Saul specific instructions through the prophet Samuel that he's supposed to show up with the army, and before the battle, they're supposed to camp and wait seven full days. And at the end of those seven days, God tells him, Samuel the prophet will come and offer a burnt offering to dedicate the whole uh, event and battle to the Lord. And then and only then, after the offering, at the end of the seven days, are they supposed to begin in warfare and battle. But... When seven days had come and almost gone and Samuel had not yet shown up, Saul begins to panic and he senses the soldiers are getting antsy and he's worried they might leave and may not even be able to fight uh, the battle against the Philistines. And Saul takes matters into his own hands and he says, even though, you know, God uh, told us to wait for Samuel to make the the sacrifice, the prophet, I'll just do it myself. And he kind of rushes through it and assumes the role of priest himself. Saul makes the burnt offering, and right when he's finishing the offering, Samuel the prophet shows up, just like God said he would, and Saul gets busted. And we see this in verse 10 of chapter 13. It says, just as Saul finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? 
asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I'll have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing. Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, speaking of David, and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So what exactly went wrong with Saul and what can you and I learn from it? The verses we just read actually offer us an early window ultimately into Saul's heart. And the heart becomes a major theme in both Saul and David's lives. Later, for example, when David is anointed as the successor, Samuel says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. And this theme comes up again and again. The Lord looks at the heart. This idea that ultimately God's not after religious service. He's not even after good behavior. Ultimately, what God's about is a relationship. He wants our hearts, our love, our loyalty, our devotion behind all the acts that we do or our obedience. He wants our love because God loves us and invites us into relationship. And the reason King Saul's faith in God lacks resiliency is because Saul continually postures his heart in the wrong direction, focusing on the externals rather than focusing on cultivating the kind of heart that God can work with. So for us, if you're taking notes, three thoughts with the rest of our time, three lessons we can learn from Saul's failures about having a resilient faith in our own lives. Number one, a resilient faith is lived out in a heart posture of repentance. It's not just that King Saul was disobedient to God, which is bad, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but the even bigger issue than Saul's disobedience or sin is how he responds when his sin is confronted. Listen, every single one of us, as the people of God, we are not perfect because none of us are Jesus. So like Saul, we too will make mistakes and sin at times as we try to follow Jesus because of our human nature. But being in relationship with God means that one day at a time, the Holy Spirit is in our lives, God's very presence, to encourage us in the directions that are good and also to convict us when we're off of our sin because God accepts us just the way that we are because he loves us. On your very worst day, God loved you desperately and sent his son to die for you on the cross. And he accepts us just as we are when we surrender, but he loves you too much to keep you that way or to keep me that way. And daily in our lives, one day at a time, he's sanctifying us more and more, growing us to live and act like Jesus, teaching us the way to flourish and thrive as human beings. And you know, there's nothing that reveals a person's heart before God uh, much more than when someone's sin is confronted. In this passage, Saul had directly disobeyed God's instructions, but when the prophet Samuel comes to him, he point blank asks Saul in verse 11, Saul, what have you done? This is supposed to be Saul's opportunity to come clean and, and, and repent and say, you know what? I disobeyed, I panicked, and I didn't wait. But instead, he doesn't do that. Look back at at, at what he did. Well, before we do that, what is repentance, by the way? What is repentance? Here's the the words in their original use 
in the Bible. The word repent in the Greek, in the ancient Greek language that the New Testament is written in, is the word metaneo. means to change the mind or the heart. And that also stems from the ancient Hebrew word in the Old Testament for uh, repent, which, mean, which is shub, which means to come back or to turn around. So repentance uh, in the original language is this idea that you're going in one direction, not heeding God's instruction or away from God's will and desires and in disobedience. And then you have a moment where you, once you realize your sin or that you're not heeding God's voice, you agree with God about that and you change your heart and mind to come back in the direction of God's good and pleasing will for your life. That's what repentance means, to change and to come back. So it's about humility. Repentance is about moldability, a willingness to admit wrong and make changes. And that's the kind of heart that God's after in someone, by the way. Because when we instead are prideful and unwilling to admit our own faults, when we you know, inflate ourselves through ego and stubbornness and pride, we edge out and stamp out room for God to be at work in us and to receive the glory in our lives. Samuel confronts Saul's disobedience, and Saul had a chance to be repentant when he asked him, what have you done? But instead, how does Saul respond? If you look back down at verse 11 and 12, what does Saul do? How does he answer Samuel's question when his sin is confronted? First, he's blame-shifting and pointing the finger. He's saying, well, when you, Samuel, didn't show up at the appointed time and the men were getting antsy and the Philistines were coming down, and then it gets worse in verse 12. He's minimizing what he does, um, but also even spiritualizing his disobedience. He's saying, well, I wanted, the soldiers are about to flee and I wanted to make sure to dedicate the battle to God. Saul's grasping for every excuse, trying to justify rejecting God's command instead of just owning it and saying, I blew it. I, I got impatient and scared and I disobeyed God. Now, contrast this to David's life. Later, David becomes the king and he makes some pretty big mistakes, arguably bigger mistakes than this. I mean, what is Saul's sin in this story? He didn't wait long enough to make a burnt offering following instructions. In David's life later, it's a full-on affair with Bathsheba, and David comes complicit directly uh, in murder. I mean, David would have 100% been canceled by today's cancel culture, no question. But how does David respond when the prophet Nathan later confronts David on his sin of adultery and murder? This is how David responds in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, period. In the original Hebrew language, which is a much more, has much more robust words than ours, in the Hebrew language, that whole sentence is actually two words. I sinned, is what David says. Notice the difference to Saul no long list of excuses or explanations or trying to spiritualize it you know, and explain what he did. David just owns it. I've sinned against God. And the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. The way of Jesus is about acknowledging that God is God, we are not, and we need his help. And when we don't walk in repentance, it affects not only our relationship with God, but it affects our relationship with people around us. In King Saul's case, his uh, inability to own his sin and re repent, it impacts the entire nation because he's the king. 
God is after a heart of humility uh, that is quick to admit when we're wrong and to own it and correct the course. And this is, by the way, so, uh, even this spirit of humility behind repentance, it goes so against the grain of our culture today. And case in point, look at like a Facebook comments section when someone posts something controversial, right? You like read and it's all about, you know, um, someone saying, well, you know, um, what I see, how I see it this way is the truth. It's a fact. And because you as another human being see it differently than I do, let me demonstrate in great detail how you're in fact a moron. And I can prove this to you. And guys, a proud or self-righteous faith is not a resilient faith. That's the begin of downfall. Is there anything that perhaps maybe you need to humble yourself over and repent of in your own life. Don't be a Saul, be a David. Lower your pride. Own it. That's the kind of heart that God can work with. Moving along. Unfortunately, not heeding God's instructions and commands becomes sort of a pattern in Saul's life. We're going to fast forward uh, to chapter 15, uh, and this leads us to our second thought of the day. If you're taking notes... What can we learn from Saul's life? Resilient faith requires a heart posture of obedience. Repentance and second, obedience. In chapter 15, again, Israel is going to battle, this time against the Amalekites. And through the prophet Samuel, God commands Saul, once I give you victory over the Amalekites, I want you to destroy all of their stuff. Here's the deal. Israel um, is fighting against this pagan nation who does all this idol worship, and God doesn't want them to get tied up in their stuff and their practices. They're supposed to protect the nation of Israel, fight off and conquer this uh, uh, pagan nation, and God says, hey, don't plunder them. Don't take all their stuff back to, is, um, back to your homeland. Just leave it, destroy it, get rid of it. And God specifically says, don't take home or keep any of their livestock, the sheep and the cattle. Uh, Just leave it, okay? And the battle is soon fought. Sure enough, Israel is given the victory, but something happens where Saul and his boys, after the victory, they parade back with the enemy kings captured in chains, you know, boasting and saying, look what we did to overthrow these guys. And all the soldiers are bringing back cattle and livestock uh, from the Amalekites. And... Again, look at verse 10. Uh, Again, Saul is confronted on this by the prophet Samuel. In chapter 15, verse 10, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Skip down to verse 13. It says, When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. That's a lie, by the way. Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear in the distance? Which is such a classic scene. It's like, you know, the kid caught in the cookie jar, crumbs on shirt and like, I didn't take the cookie. And here you have Saul saying, yeah, I did exactly what the Lord commanded. And if it was in a movie right on cue after he said that, you'd hear in the distance, meh. You know, just, I've been told I do a good goat, by the way. Hidden talents to be proud of in life? I don't know. Verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Uh, They spared the best of the sheep, so he blames it on his soldiers, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul, and he proceeds to tell Saul that because of his disobedience, God has rejected him as king. 
But Saul keeps making excuses. Verse 20, he says, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The the best of all was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Again, he's spiritualizing why they disobeyed. Same story, excuses, blame shifting, they did this, sprinkle a little lying in there this time. And then a famous verse, verse 22, don't miss this. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. That line, to obey, is better than sacrifice. At this point in history, animal sacrifice was a big deal uh, for Israel. It was at the heart of the Jewish system of worship. It was the external act they would do to affirm their inner loyalty to Yahweh, to God. But Samuel makes this statement. He says, listen, Saul, it's not the act of the burnt offering or sacrifice itself that God's after. It's not the external gestures that he's after in and of themselves. And guys, the same rings true for us today as followers of Jesus. It's not the actual uh, external gestures themselves. Ultimately, it's not about the songs themselves and the singing of the songs, although that's a good thing and we're called to worship God in singing, but it's about the heart behind what we're saying to God in praise, what we're declaring in those songs. It's not in and of itself about the church attendance. I mean, you could show up to church every week and still be walking in disobedience to God in your heart. It's not about uh, the acts of service for others themselves, though we're called to do that. It's about the why behind it. Samuel says it's about obedience. Are even any of you familiar with the love languages? There was the, a book a while back called The Five Love Languages. It's been very popular in relationship counseling the last multiple decades, and it's about how different people, depending upon how they're wired, uh, all uh, communicate and receive love in different ways, okay? For example, my love language, Ian, for example, my love, two love languages are verbal affirmation and touch. Meaning, for me, in relationship, all you have to do is give me a hug and compliment me, and we're good, I know you love me, that's all I need. Now, I found out a few years ago that statistically, my two love languages are statistically most common for women, whatever, uh, my wife, On the other hand, she has the opposite love languages of me in communicating love. Hers are quality time and acts of service. Meaning like I could, you know, sit around like praising her and saying all these nice things, but what she's really longing for is me to spend time with her and do stuff for her. And then she'll feel loved, okay? I was just thankful my wife didn't have the fifth love language, which is gifts, because that gets expensive. Some of you sit next to your significant other and you're like, "Mm mm-hmm, I love you, but... Right? Well, the reason I bring all that up is because after years of studying and teaching the scriptures, I am convinced, guys, that if God had a love language, God's love language would be obedience. Like, if you want to really communicate your love to God, obey him. This is all over the Bible. I think of the great Shema, arguably the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. 
And then God proceeds to give Israel his commands. Notice the direct link between loving God and keeping his commands or having his commands in your heart. Jesus was huge on this in his teachings. There's so many passages I could look at, but in John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Over and over again, God links love for him with obedience. And you know, we as uh, modern-day Portlanders, if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't like this idea of obeying God. We live in a post-enlightened, um, you know, anti-authoritarian society, and what's more, we're adults. I mean, in my life, like, what? who do I have to obey? I'm a grown man in my culture. I have two children, by the way. Grayer, my son, is eight years old. Ruby, our daughter, is six. They're fantastic. I love being their father. When they were in their toddler years, Grayer, when uh, he was a little guy, he was our, our child who was more cautious and quieter and calculated and didn't attempt very many dangerous things, which you know, decreased some stress for us in those early years of childhood. Whereas Ruby, uh, when she showed up as a, as a little one, Ruby, our daughter, was the more energetic, louder uh, toddler of the two. I was sharing this with a guy one time, and he's like, oh, good for you. I have two types of children, loud and louder. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so Gray, our son, was uh, then, at that time, you know, more cautious and quieter, and, and Ruby is the more rambunctious one who, like, attempted these more dangerous things or ended up um, stumbling into a few dangerous things. Like, for example, a few days after she could learn to scoot and crawl, she ended up falling down our flight of nine stairs on my watch, and we rush her to ER. She ended up being totally fine. I wasn't. I still have PTSD from that. Now Ruby is six years old, and she um, is now riding her bike without steering wheels. And the last couple of weeks, you know, we're giving her all these safety rules. And here's the deal, guys. Um, with, at this point in time, with my kids at age eight and six, as their dad, like if I had my way, both of my children at this age would go through all of life wearing a helmet and a life jacket and a hazmat suit and perhaps living inside those plastic spherical uh, objects that I could just kind of push the children around and they'd always stay safe from everything, right? When we talk about parenting as modern uh, Portlanders today in our day and age, in the 21st century, when, when we're talking about parenting and children, it's so obvious that the reason a parent teaches their child to look both ways before crossing a street or to not touch a burning red-hot stove, the reason you teach your children that is because you love them. You want to protect your child from destructive things. You want your kid to flourish and thrive, so you want to teach them you know, the, the, the good way to go about something that will set them up for success and, and be a blessing to them and others, and you want to protect them from harm. The problem is some of us actually think of God as being like a cosmic killjoy, always trying to rain on our parade and fun, like, hey, you know, don't do this, don't uh, get drunk, don't lie, um, be kind to your enemies, you know, and encourage and be hospitable to others, and on and on. Why is God obsessed with our obedience? Is it because um, he's some, like, tyrant in the universe trying to control us? What if it couldn't be farther from the truth? And the testimony of the scriptures is that God is our heavenly father, and he's a good father. 
He created you. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He's God. You are not. And as the creator of human life, as your creator, who's been around for centuries and has much more wisdom than we do, he knows what's best for you and I. He's after our thriving and flourishing in life. He's actually after your joy because he loves you. So when you think of obeying God, don't think of like, you know, following holy rules. Think in relationship with God, one day at a time, you and I get to learn the best possible way to live as human beings in the world that God created for the good of us and those around us. And obedience is the nuts and bolts of a resilient faith. So our job as followers of Jesus each day uh, is really quite simple. We make this uh, way too overcomplex. Our job as followers of Jesus, one day at a time, should be waking up and doing two things, listening and then obeying. Repeat, listening and then obeying. What's God calling me to? What's he saying in the scripture? How can I obey that today? One day at a time. When we don't obey God, it reveals something about our hearts. This is where Saul blew it. So don't be a King Saul. By contrast, in the life of King David, we see a pattern where time and time again, uh, David is up against some really challenging things that God, God asked him to do some things that take courageous faith and, and David uh, battles fear against his enemies and all these things. But over and over again, we see a pattern with King David where he takes courage and even when it's challenging or he doesn't feel like it, he steps out and obeys God. And that's the pattern in David's life. You know, there's a sense in which some of you in this room and listening online need to act more like children. Children who are obedient to a loving father. So I want to ask you, what's, what's God asking you to do at this point in your life? Where's he calling you to obey? Where's there been maybe some slippage in your obedience to God? One last passage on Saul. Uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. You guys still with me? Hang in there. I love you guys. Last passage, 1 Samuel 18. Many of you have heard the famous story of David and Goliath, where Saul, instead of trusting God and obeying him to lead Israel into another battle uh, against the Philistines, Saul is scared stiff because the Philistines have uh, this giant warrior Goliath on their side that none of the guys can seem to beat in combat. And Saul, because he's scared to go into battle, he recruits this young, wiry uh, shepherd warrior, David. And you, uh, many of you have heard how the story goes. Unlike Saul, David trusts God in battle. He has courage to face the giant Goliath, and he defeats him to lead Israel to this incredible win. And here, in these verses, we come to the aftermath. It says in 1 Samuel 18, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. His refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, it says, Saul kept a close eye on David. And if you follow the narrative, uh, this launches Saul into what is a well-documented, deep and dark cycle of jealousy 
toward David that lasts for the rest of Saul's life. And Saul's jealousy just snowballs over time. I mean, it gets worse and worse and worse because it, 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 it really um, ends up plummeting Saul into being that ultimate villain in David's life because it starts with him just being jealous of David, but then it goes from that to Saul wishing that David is dead. And then he goes from wishing David is dead to trying to talk his son Jonathan into killing David, who's Jonathan's best friend. When Jonathan won't kill David, Saul then tries to kill David himself on multiple occasions. In fact, Saul's jealousy in this spiral, it gets so bad that at one point, Saul executes 85 priests just because a few of them had helped David at one point earlier. And, and, and it's just this uh, vicious cycle of jealousy Again, uh, the jealousy shows us something about Saul's heart that we can learn from. The final and third thing, if you're taking notes today, what kind of heart posture is needed for a resilient faith? Repentance, obedience, third, contentment. Jealousy is a big deal in the Bible. There's a reason that one-tenth of the Ten Commandments is devoted to not coveting your neighbor's stuff. In the New Testament, James, in James 3, it says, beware of bitter envy because Wherever in your life you have envy, you're going to have disorder in every evil practice. And when it comes down to it, jealousy, wanting what someone else has, reveals something about the heart, doesn't it? It reveals our dissatisfaction, our discontentment. I mean, just think about it. Here you have King Saul. He had so much. He was the king. He was already on top. And yet Saul grows jealous and insecure of someone else because of their successes in notoriety. Think about that. Saul's the king of a whole country, and even the king is jealous of someone else. But there's so much reality in there that hits close to home, isn't there? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're all a little bit like Saul at times. I mean, when will we ever learn there will always be someone out there who's smarter than you or more successful than you or has a bigger house than you. There will always be someone out there who's wealthier than you or better looking. You could go on and on down this list. And the truth is you can always look at all these other scenarios and compare and the grass will always be greener over there with what they have, always, every time. And, you know, deep down inside, we know this. We know the grass is, is always greener and that that doesn't usually work out. Yet we still compare and get jealous of other people and we continue so often on this endless hamster wheel of having to acquire more things and achieve more and get that person to notice me or this following or that person to like me uh, over and over again. That's why it's so unbelievably powerful and freeing when Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts talking about living water. When he's talking to the woman at the well, he says, if you drink of what I'm offering, your soul will never go thirsty again. We're talking like rich, deep satisfaction. And in contrast to Saul, David experiences this kind of freedom in God. And he understands this. For example, in Psalm 63, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, David says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully what? satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. David is saying, I have experienced you and God, I have come to conclude you are it. You're enough. 
There's no more searching. There's nothing else to obtain. I am fully satisfied in you. Saul is looking uh, for contentment everywhere but in God. He's looking for it in his accolades and successes and accomplishments. David has learned this secret that there really is nothing better out there you could find than walking in and knowing and having the love of God. And, And that's the reason that Saul's Faith withers over time as he's looking for fulfillment in these other things. David has found his fulfillment in God. I mentioned that my family moved away to Colorado two years ago. That ended up being a very challenging year for me personally. Uh, And it started with uh, shortly after we'd lived there a month or two, I started getting these really intense chest pains that freaked my wife and I out. They take me to the emergency room, and then um, they're worried I might have a, a clot in my lung, and they do all these tests, and then it's not that. I have some blockage, and they uh, refer me to this pulmonologist for like six weeks, and we go through all of it, and they conclude it was something much less scary. It ends up being because I had moved to uh, you know 6,500-foot elevation that I personally, for some reason, had some intense allergic reactions to the high desert climate there. And it was this odd thing where like, Every day for months, I would just wake up feeling sick. And then um, a few months later, a global pandemic occurs with COVID-19. And I don't recommend like moving to a brand new place right at the start of a global pandemic when everything's shut down and quarantined. It's very challenging to build community and make friends. I'm a social guy, so I like, was having a hard time making friends in Colorado. I couldn't get out and see anybody. And um, it comes to this point toward the end of our time there where I was having one of those days, classic days where like everything around you is going wrong. It was one of those days where like, you know, the stock market was crashing again that day. And you know, I'm like looking at that, and then I get this call from the, the shop, and my Jeep commander, they tell me the engine has gone kaput. It's, can't, the car's done. And I remember, um, you know, during this process, I had slowly started complaining more and more to my wife. And um, there's this point on that day where I'm like, I remember sitting in this part of my house and I'm, I'm having a pity party, taking inventory of all my first world problems. And no one's invited to my pity party except for me. And I'm over there and I'm thinking, you know, gosh, you know, got no health all of a sudden, got no friends, got no car, our pets' heads are falling off. You know, and you just go down that dark spiral where everything's going wrong. And I remember I flip on my phone, I'm going through, and I see this friend's photo. Uh, Their family literally lives in Hawaii, and they're driving in this uh, Jeep that's all decked out and actually works and runs. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, and his, his crypto's probably going, quote, to the moon. And I'm, like, sitting there, you know, watching. And I remember having this thought of, like, ah, I'd like to be you. There was something wrong with my heart that had crept in. And the band, you can start to make your way up here. But um, I started repenting of my discontentment and my distraction and comparison. And all of a sudden now I'm looking for uh, fulfillment in other things. And this last year has been such this amazing year of my wife and I just counting blessings and just stopping and like cherishing all these amazing blessings in our life. And I haven't been perfect in it. It's, it's been a journey over this last year. You know what the church is, guys? We are a group of broken people who need Jesus, trying to figure it out together, and we have experienced that there, is, there really is nothing better than God's love, and one day at a time, we're learning over and over again to catch ourselves when we start to get distracted from that and repent and own our sin and come back to a place of obedience and seeking fulfillment in God. And you guys, you know what the, the crazy secret 
about having a resilient faith is, it's not what you would think. It's actually a paradox. You got to level those paradoxes in the scripture, like humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Die to yourself and then you'll find life in Christ. Well, the secret to a resilient faith is actually a paradox as well because when we talk about a faith that lasts, a faith that stands the test of time and stays consistent, we're not talking about just being more resilient in our walk with God. And there's a place for calling the church to perseverance, to endurance, and we need God's help with that. But listen, the paradox is, first and foremost, having a resilient faith in Jesus, it's not about just enduring or just being more resilient or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps to you know, do it again today and just ha- being, having a stronger back. No, 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 the irony is having a resilient faith over time is about learning how to maintain a soft heart before God where each day you come before him weak and say, God, I need your help. And I identify these areas of my life that need to come in submission to you. Help me to obey you today. And Jesus, I choose to believe again that there's nothing better than your love. And I want to stay right here in your love and live that way. Amen? Let's worship.